So there's been a lot going on in South African cricket circles lately, both on and off the field, and we've been trying to keep up with it all. But today we are delighted to bring in a special guest to help us make sense of everything. Someone who's been leading the cricket coverage in the region during this challenging time. ESPN Quick Info's South Africa correspondent for Doze Munda. Welcome to the Top Order podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat to you guys. And we're, we're super excited here as well. I guess first things first, let's get some of the pleasantries out of the way. H- how are you doing over there? From the outside, it looks as if uh, South Africa hasn't been an especially fun place to be these past few months during COVID. So how, how's it all tracking there for you? And I, I guess into the sort of cricketing circles as well. Yeah, it's getting a little bit more difficult now. We've obviously been hit by quite a big second wave and we're averaging around 18 to 20,000 positive cases a day, which is much bigger than it was in our first wave. The hospitals are pretty full and I think I think now people are, are getting a sense of the reality of the situation. We had quite a lot of denial earlier on. We're also quite far down the vaccine queue, so that's not helping with morale. Mm-hmm. And it's really affected sport. You know, it's affected uh, more specifically the Springboks, who were unable to travel for the rugby championship. We've had lots of Curry Cup matches called off because of positive cases. It's affected cricket as well. Of course, England left after their uh, bio bubble was thought to be breached, also by themselves, by the way. And um, we've had our domestic one-day cup needing to be moved and the the fixtures have been uh, shortened from 24 to 15. So, yeah, definitely a big impact. I guess that the major impact will be later in the summer when we see if Australia come or not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Australia, I I don't know if they'll want to come to a country where there are 18,000 positive cases a day despite the security of the bio bubble. So, yeah, it's not, not looking too good, I'm afraid. Not like you guys. Yeah, well, look, we feel uh, yeah fairly privileged to be where we are. But, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, even here in New Zealand, we're still um, being urged to remain pretty vigilant because a little outbreak for us will mean, yeah, back to, yeah, certainly back to, to lockdowns and things like that. We hinted in the intro about things um, off the field, but let's start with something positive. You've just soundly beaten Sri Lanka in that two test series, which I think um, is your first test series win in in a little while. How important was it to get back out there in that context, particularly, as you mentioned, with that early end to the England tour? Very important, first of all, that the biobubble worked, that there were no positive cases across both camps and that Cricket South Africa could see that uh, the Irene Country Club is a good place to host these kind of matches. You know, from a results perspective, it's really hard to tell because Sri Lanka were hit by serious injury. They came without Angelo Matthews. Then they lost seven players in the first test and played the second test really, I guess, with a team that they wouldn't have wanted to pick. So kind of difficult to judge South Africa's batsmen against an attack that was down to one bowler at one point in the Supersport Park test. So I I guess important that South Africa won, important that they won in home conditions, important that lots of the top order got runs. Dean Elgar, Faf Duplessis, Temba Bavuma made a 70 as well. And uh, we got to see some of the other bowlers because Kahisa Rabada was out of the series. So for Luta Sipamla, the youngster from Johannesburg, well, originally from Port Elizabeth, now playing his cricket in Johannesburg. He's 22 years old. His first five overs went for something like 40 runs in Mm -hmm. test cricket. And then he came back to take 10 wickets for 100. So he's done really well in the series. Um, Not necessarily the quickest bowler you've ever seen, but he seems to have really good control. And as a third seamer, I think he he could do really well for South Africa in future. So him and Vian Mulder, the all-rounder, were probably the two positives. Yeah. And from a, I guess, from a financial perspective, did that tour boost the coffers at all or, or Uh, or not really? Yeah, so it wouldn't have. I mean, the way that cricket finances work in South Africa is that the board only makes money when England, Australia or India tour. And so, especially in a biobubble environment, all the other tours are loss making. Remember, Cricket South Africa were paying for so many COVID tests. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily that expensive, but if you're doing 10 across the two camps, that's a lot of testing, including the umpires, including the hotel staff. And then just, you know, renting out a facility like the Irene Country Club, it's not like a hotel. It's a huge facility with a golf course and a driving range and all sorts of things. And uh, it would have been a financial hit for Cricket South Africa, which is what makes the Australia series so important because that will be the moneymaker. Cricket South Africa also have a broadcast rights deal coming up for renewal in April. And depending on the performance of the team and depending on how much cricket they can host, it will severely impact on on what the new deal will be. So we already get the sense that it'll be about 30% less than based on all sorts of things. You know, the performance of the team, which hasn't been good over the last few years, 
the economic climate at the moment, uh, and the fact that the, the broadcaster, who is Supersport, have actually got a lot of other things to put on television, including that they've just uh, bought two ESPN channels. So, you know, they're really showing that uh, they're looking elsewhere, that, you know, basketball is, is gaining a lot of momentum, other American sport. So I think cricket is in a lot of trouble in, in this country. So back to the, I guess, the on-field stuff. Uh, Quinton de Kock took the captaincy reins, it seemed reluctantly from the outside. Um, has that changed, do you think, his view with that series win? Or is the plan, do you think, that they're still looking for a long-term successor? And if so, who might those candidates be, do you think? Yeah, I don't think Quinton de Kock is a long-term solution to the test side. Uh, he just doesn't look in control on the field. There are lots of players, and, and that's fine. You know, you have a senior core of players and people then turn to those for advice. And, and he's also behind the stumps all day, so he can't really be directing things all the time. So I, I, I just don't think he's the long-term solution. He's uncomfortable in interviews. He, he just he seems to have gone a little bit into a shell. He didn't score many runs. He's batting out of position as well. He shouldn't be batting as high as number five. So there's quite a lot for them to think about with Quinton de Kock. He will definitely do the job for the two tests in Pakistan, which start next week, and then for the three in Australia if they happen. Well, not in Australia, although they might happen in Australia as well. Who knows? Um, and then, yeah, a long-term solution will be, will be sought. And I think that's really the conundrum that South Africa faced because really nobody else apart from Faf Duplessis, who, of course, is the former captain and will probably retire in the next year or two, is a certainty in the side. So I guess Dean Elgar has now really put himself forward. You know, he did uh, score some really good runs against Sri Lanka. He's also quite an abrasive character, so I'm not sure that he would be a good long-term captaincy solution. He's a senior player, so that's one thing. But whether he's captaincy material, I'm not sure. And then the two candidates probably most being spoken about are the other opener, Aidan Markram, who captained South Africa to uh, under-19 World Cup victory in 2014, and who seems to be a captain in nature. He he seems to be well, kind of, his thought process is good. He's articulate. Um, he's got a good cricket brain, but he really needs to score runs. You know, he was out of the side for the whole of last summer, first of all, with injury, and then he probably would have been dropped, but he got injured again. And then the other one is Temba Bavuma, who has captained these Lions franchise to a couple of titles, a four-day championship, a T20 championship, who is really uh, incredibly mature really has a good understanding of the way South Africa works, both from a sporting and a social perspective, and would make history as South Africa's first black African captain. Of course, the problem is Temba Bovuma last scored a test century five years ago, and that's his only one, and he's under huge pressure to perform. So if one of those two can come right over the next five tests, then I think that will be the future test captain. Otherwise, you know, South Africa don't play tests until perhaps December next year. So, or not next year, this year. So, you know, they've got a long time to really think about what to do. Mm. And and you just mentioned Faf before. Was him stepping back from the captaincy, was that uh, in an attempt to kind of prolong his career a little bit? And, I mean, you touched on it just before about how you think he's probably only got a, a year or two to go. Is that is that the thinking in, in his mind? No, I don't think so. I think Faf Duplessis stepped down from the captaincy because he faced an enormous amount of pressure last summer. South Africa were really performing extremely poorly. They had been, you know, completely outspun in India. Then they came home and lost to England. Faf Duplessis wasn't scoring runs. And he made an absolute gaffe when speaking about Temba Bavuma and talking about Bavuma being dropped, uh, and especially the kind of racial tensions around Bavuma's selection in saying that as the South African team, they don't see colour which, you know, would have been fine to say in the 90s when we were still sort of coming into democracy and this idea of a rainbow nation. But to say you don't see colour in 2020 as it was at the time was just naive at best and really ignorant at worst. And so Duplessis faced mounting, mounting pressure for that comment. Uh, there was a lot of kind of public opinion where it was a case of Duplessis versus Bavuma. And every time, you know, Bavuma was scoring runs domestically, Duplessis wasn't scoring runs in the test. And I think that pressure just became too much. And it's a pity he stepped down because he's probably South Africa's most astute captain. I, I guess Graham Smith, you know, would come into the conversation as well. He's certainly a better candidate than A.B. de Villiers and uh, Hashim Amla and even Quinton de Kock, I would say. So South Africa have really lost a gem of a captain, but it, it is a sign of the, the political mood and the social mood and the way that, that cricket has gone. In terms of his career, look, he's looking really fit. He wants to play the T20 World Cup later this year. I don't know if the 2023 ODI World Cup is maybe a bridge too far. It probably is. But I think he could keep going for, I mean, I'm saying a year or two. I wouldn't be that surprised if it's three. 
He'd certainly fill some of these shirts on our back wall a lot better than we would, uh, Faf Duplessis. He's, <laughs> he's got that, uh, yeah, he asked for a medium shirt, that's for sure. And what he about- doesn't always like to wear a shirt, as you might know. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> don't think he'd have any use for those. <laughs> and what about Mark Boucher? His kind of first year or so in charge of the South African side as coach. A lot of talk about regime change and fresh faces and, and maintaining that link between past player and, and current player in terms of his stepping into the role as coach of that South African side. What are the initial impressions of his impact as a coach and the year that he's had with the South African team, albeit a very disrupted one? Yeah, I mean, that makes it quite hard to say in that South Africa didn't play from March until November, basically. So, you know, he's only had kind of four months in charge. The England series was difficult. It was literally as he took over, you know, he took over 10 days before the series started. And I think it would have been unfair to really expect that that too much would change. Uh, it's looking a little bit more cohesive now. And again, tough to say because of, of the injuries that Sri Lanka were hit by. But I think he's got a, a strategy where they're going to be using a lot of bowlers. They're rotating between them. I mean, that might also be necessitated by the COVID times. They're mining the, the franchise system for depth and they're finding a lot of players, which is great. They're giving opportunities. Uh, he's come up with this phrase, aggressive but smart, or maybe it's smart but aggressive cricket, and no one really knows what that means. So we need to kind of wait to see. It looks like the batsmen are trying to be a little bit more proactive. They're playing their shots, but at the same time, they're not playing too many silly shots. So maybe that's part of it. And, and I think really, if Australia play against South Africa somewhere this summer, that will really give us a good gauge. And then you know, depending on, on how much cricket they can get before the T20 World Cup, again, that will be a, a way to really judge how Barcher's tenure is going. He's got a long contract, you know, it's unprecedented for a coach to be given a four-year deal. So he will take them ostensibly to the end of the 2023 World Cup. And, you know, like so many South African coaches, that will be the reckoning for him. So if he comes back with a trophy, I don't know what will happen. He may coach them for the rest of his life. But if he doesn't, then I think that that will probably be that. Uh, so it's interesting. I think Really, kind of, if we're looking at Mark Boucher's time in charge, it's more about the rhetoric. And so, you know, when he came on board, it, he came on board as an appointee from Graham Smith, who obviously he played under, who's a good friend of his. Then they brought Jacques Callis on board, who was Jacques, uh, Mark Boucher's good friend. Then they brought Paul Harris on board. Then they got sort of really uh, collided with the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that really raised questions about what Mark Boucher thinks and feels about being a, a South African, a white South African in a country that is, is very politicized at the moment. So, yeah, I don't know that results will define his time in charge. I think it might be more the, the other discussions. Turning our attention a little bit more to the off-field situation, um, the cricket world was really enlightened and awoken by uh, a lot of your writing uh, across sort of November, December, January this year, particularly around the release of the Funduzzi report. But this political administrative situation has been going on in South Africa for a lot longer than that. Can you take us back a few months or, or even a year or two or more to when this kind of political situation, this unrest in the administration really started in South African cricket? I mean, <laughs> I ask myself a lot when it started, and I think it probably started around the time of the Global T20 League, which was uh, 2017, 2016, when Harun Logart was still the CEO. And the failure of that league to materialize, which then led to Logart and CSA parting ways, brought in uh, a new CEO, Tabang Moroi, who we've subsequently learned was unqualified for the post. And... Tabang Moroi's main agenda was Africanization and pushing transformation along black African lines. So that involved, you know, changing up the coaching staff. He got rid of the word coach and he brought in something called a team director. And no one ever found out what that was because now we're back to a coach. And uh, he, it ended, and he also, there was a lot of financial mismanagement at the time. So a crass way of looking at it would be that between him and the chief operating officer, Nassai Apia, they spent over $30,000 in alcohol. And, you know, that's one issue, but there are many other issues in that they lost sponsors. Uh, television rights became, became a problem. The failure to launch the Global T20 League resulted in another T20 tournament called the Mzanzi Super League, which was unable to get a broadcaster. So it was given for free to the public broadcaster, which then cost Cricket South Africa 200 million rand. So just bad management, I guess, would be a way to sum it up. And a lot of kind of ego-driven gravy train type stuff was going on. and this then blew up late 2019 when Marowi revoked the accreditation of five journalists. 
it caused a huge storm from the South African National Editors Forum to sponsors pulling out to the Cricketers Association condemning it. And he was then suspended, but it took another nine months before he was fired. In that time, the Funduzi report was compiled. Subsequently, Cricket South Africa have been through two acting CEOs and they're now on their third. They've also had the sports ministry wanting to intervene. Uh, and if the sports ministry had, they could have withdrawn funding as well as official recognition from Cricket South Africa. Mm -hmm. So then the board resigned. Now they've got an interim board. And <laughs> I guess that's my brief summation of it. But I mean, chaos, I guess, is, is the one word and also complete loss of confidence in, in the players for their employers. Not to mention the domestic restructure, which is going to cause 75 cricketers to lose their jobs. So, yeah, just a lot going on. Can you can you say, like, how close did things actually get to them losing international status and, and things like that? Was it was it touch and go there for a, for a few moments? Absolutely. Um, the sports minister had made plain that he was going to intervene and had warned Cricket South Africa that unless they complied with we have a body called the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, which is a legislative body under which all the country's sporting organizations operate. Ostensibly, they're uh, independent from the sports ministry, but they're not really. And so the sports minister asked for Cricket South Africa to comply with this Olympic Committee, who had wanted for the board to step aside and wanted full access to the Fundudzi report, and Cricket South Africa refused. Then the sports minister said, all right, well, in that case, I'm going to have to intervene. And then Cricket South Africa very reluctantly agreed to let him have some sort of, of say and issue an interim board. And then they rejected the interim board. So at that point, when they had said, all right, fine, we're going to do what you say. Oh, but actually, we're not going to do what you say. At that point, it was kind of days away from the sports minister saying, that is it. Like, I've had it with you guys and I'm putting you under administration. And he would have been well within his rights too. I mean, he'd been incredibly patient and had given them so much opportunity over the course of several months to do the right thing. And really the issue lay with the board and, and the board's absolute refusal to step down. So when they finally stepped down and the interim board was allowed to commence its work, things were thought to smooth over. But you know, subsequent to that, they've suspended three more members of staff and there's no indication of when a permanent CEO will be hired or even when the interim board will complete its work. So I don't think we're out of the, out of the woods yet. I think a lot still needs to happen before we have a functioning organisation. And in terms of the Fundudzi report, diving into that in, in a little bit of detail, have we got to the bottom of all of the facts that have been outlined in that report? Have all of the findings been released? And why, why did it take so long for, for that amount of detail or that report to become public to the media and, and to interested members of, of cricket in South Africa and in the Sports Commission? Yeah, so the report has been made public. It's 468 pages so uh, I have to confess, I haven't read them all. I've glanced through some of it. And, you know, the, the big things are financial mismanagement, hiring companies to provide services to Cricket South Africa and paying them, but no services were then provided, and those types of things. Um, why it took so long is, is because people wanted to protect themselves. So there was uh, initially an idea that if the report was released with people's names in it and a subsequent legal case had to be made against those people. Releasing the report could jeopardize that case. Right. And so therefore, Cricket South Africa and the board wanted to keep the report private. They also then made the minister, they wanted the minister to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which he refused to do. And they wanted anybody who saw that report to sign a non-disclosure agreement. The interim board have subsequently released the report on the basis that it's in the public interest. You know, there were several publications in South Africa who launched legal cases to try and get the report released because mm. it really is in the public interest. Mm. Cricket South Africa is a public body and the money that they use needs to be, needs to be explained. So now the report's out there and, and actions are being taken. People are being suspended. People are facing disciplinary action. It, it's not plugging the financial hole because Cricket South Africa is still bleeding money. So that's the next step. And in terms of the interim board, how, how long a journey have they got to go to to rectify and and kind of not fix, but kind of get Cricket South Africa's administration and governance back on the right path? And have we seen all of the fallout from that Fundudzi report in terms of hirings and firings? No, definitely not yet. So the last acting CEO, Krugendri Govinda, will have her disciplinary hearing on January 28th, as well as the company secretary, Welsh Gwaza, who was due to have his a month ago and it was postponed. And I'm not too sure what's happened with that, but it will be soon, I'm sure. So, no, we haven't seen the end of it. There'll still be a lot more to, to come out in terms of 
who is going to still keep their job. And, you know, it's, it's complicated for, for other boards because, you know, Cricket Australia kind of joked about it. Like, we don't know who to call at Cricket mm. South Africa. Mm. And I'll be honest with you, as a journalist, I don't know who to call either. You know, there's just, there's like a vacuum in terms of, of that. Um, the interim board is supposed to complete its work by the end of this month. And I think that that is not going to happen. And so their tenure would have to be extended potentially for another three months. But of course, Cricket South Africa is a registered company in this country, which means they have to, by law, have an annual general meeting, I think by the end of January. And, and if that is unable to take place, which looks like it could, they could run into other administrative problems. You know, they may have to make a very strong case as to why they need that meeting postponed. And only once that meeting takes place and the position of a permanent CEO is advertised and interviews are held and the CEO is appointed and a structure for a permanent board is put in place, can the interim board say that it's completed its work? So the real issue with appointing a permanent board is that Cricket South Africa had the structure where the 14 provincial presidents sat on what's called the Members' Council, and they had the authority to make all decisions regarding cricket in this country. But they were also the overarching body in charge of a board, an actual company board, which consisted of some members from this Members' Council and then some people from outside. So you've got this tutored structure, but you know, you've got like an overflow of people from one to the other. Mm. And of course, it means that this board cannot be independent. It's, you know, it's got some members from the members council. Mm. That structure doesn't work. And in fact, Cricket South Africa, when Gerald Majola was fired back in 2012, after the IPL bonus scandal, the recommendation there was to have a, an, a board that was consisting of mostly independent directors, which Cricket South Africa didn't do. So the strong feeling we've got is that uh, a board will be put in place with mostly independent directors, which has problems of its own. You know, you need cricket people running cricket and to have business people and other sorts of people is helpful, but they don't always understand the issues affecting cricket specifically. Mm. So how are they going to put this board together is really anyone's guess at the stage. We've heard some names thrown around and, uh, you know, former cricketers, former, former administrators. Hopefully they can get the right mix, uh, but it will take some time. And how disruptive has it been for the players? And, and, and I guess what's the reaction been from them and even the fans? You know, are people furious about all this, you know, um, disorganisation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are furious. People have absolutely had enough of the incompetence in South African cricket. And it's definitely affected the players, you know, from simple things like lack of communication. For example, Mark Boucher yesterday told us that he hasn't even been informed that the affirmative action policy, which said that only non-white consultants could be hired by Cricket South Africa has been repealed. He hasn't even been told that. He's read about it in the media. So the interim board is not communicating with the team management. They didn't communicate regarding transformation targets either. And we saw some bizarre things in the England series where, for example, Anrik Nokia, who just done really well at the IPL, was left out of the first T20 because the team was under the impression they had to meet a certain transformation target, which they actually didn't have to meet. And the, the un unclear communication I think is, is really affecting them of course the big thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is that eventually the financial situation will affect them so for now there's been no pay cuts but that's for now and if cricket South Africa continues to lose money and if the, their viability as a product is is just diminished then players will definitely face pay cuts and I think maybe that's when we'll see the players do a little bit more what we've seen so far is the South African Cricketers Association quite strongly come out and condemn the board, condemn the CEO, you know, take Cricket South Africa to court over the domestic restructure and really stand for its players. But you know, I keep going back to Australia because when, when the Australian situation uh, was, was in play, what you saw was big, big name international players coming out and, and speaking on behalf of state cricketers. We don't have that here. And, and I think that that is really what you need. You need a Faf Duplessis and a Quinton de Kock and a Keiji Rabada to come and say, either we won't play if the situation continues or, you know, we demand that the situation changes. I think the players are trying to remove themselves from it because it is so chaotic. And mm. they're also in a situation where they have to win games of cricket because they've been doing so poorly. But the effect is, is massive. And, and we can see that, you know, South Africa went to India with a, a team director, which was someone that, like, we didn't even really know what his job was. And, and you know, Enoch Nkwe, who was the team director, is, is a coach with a huge amount of potential, um, a very intelligent man. He'd had one season in franchise cricket. He'd swept it, sure. I mean, he'd won three trophies. But to then take a team to India, where you know South Africa have only faced really difficult conditions, was crazy. And um, I don't think it did him or the team any favours. They lost badly. They came back. They lost to England. And it's, it's just been a kind of slippery slope. 
And pre- presumably it would be really difficult for that interim board to negotiate good media deals as well. Um, so in- until you've got someone in place, like, um, you know, Tom Harrison is credited quite rightly with, you know, the, yeah. from an ECB perspective, getting very, very good TV deals. But th- that was because he had that strength of, uh, you know, a new board and structure behind him as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the issue with, with the, the, the big one, which is the Supersport rights deal, is that, you know, Supersport and, and Supersport have a lot of issues and they're a monopoly on sport in the country. And obviously, I'll never get a job there after saying this. But, you know, Supersport are, uh, are wanting somebody that they that they are able to recognize and that they're able to negotiate with. And at the moment, there's just nobody to talk to from Cricket South Africa. How do you even begin the rights deal negotiations? They also hold all the power. Because, you know, there is no other paid television station in this country. So if Supersport say to Cricket South Africa, we're giving you 50% less, what are Cricket South Africa going to do, really? And, and whether they have somebody that can then lead a negotiations process is, is the big issue. So television rights is a major one. They have signed some deals with Star and with Fox and, and, and you know, overseas networks, maybe Sky as well. So there are some things in the works, but, you know, those places won't want... For Fox, for example, will they still want to deal if there's no Australia series? Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are, are things that really need to be considered. Um, and you touched on there the, the lack of cohesion in um, transformation targets and communication. And um, it seemed like the Black Lives Matter, um, how the response to that was not really, uh, no one really seemed to know either what was going on or, yeah, it didn't seem like it was particularly cohesive. How, I guess, it, from a South African context, how how difficult is is all of the the racial element to uh, to navigate for for the board? It's it's their biggest challenge. Mm. It's it's the absolute biggest thing in South Africa, whether it's life, sport, business, whatever. You know, ra- race is is really the the one thing that we've grappled with. And I think you know, a couple of things need to be said. The one is that the national team's response to Black Lives Matter has been embarrassing. This is a country that is the last legalized bastion of white supremacy. We are 27 years into democracy and we prior to that had an apartheid system of 70 odd years in slavery for 300 years. So I can't understand how this team has thought it would be okay not to join the rest of the world in, in doing what people are doing, which is taking a knee. And their, their gesture of raising a fist you know, was comical at best in that nobody really knew what to do and some raised a fist and some didn't and then some put their hands down and some looked at the floor and it was just like, just rather don't do anything because this, this looks really bad. Uh, but also, you know, for me, a couple of issues that come up is that Mark Boucher, the coach, who was not present at this very silly three-team solidarity cup that was held in July for reasons unknown, um, has not said a word about Black Lives Matter. He is the national coach, and he's not told us what he thinks about transformation or the plight of people of color in this country. Neither has the captain, Quinton de Kock. Neither of them were present at the Solidarity Cup. Neither of them have taken a knee. Neither of them have issued one word that lets people of color in this country know that just that they are aware that there is a problem. So that is a huge issue. Then we've got the issue of the interim board being very strong and really condemning the national team and saying, we want you to do something, but we can't force you to do something, but we want you to do something. And that resulted in the fist. Uh, And then we've got the issue of the behind the scenes shenanigans where what we saw over the winter was just an outpouring from players of color, talking about experiences from Makai Antini alleging that nobody would sit next to him on the bus, to Ashwell Prince talking about the team wanting them to continue playing after racial abuse in Australia. And you just had all this kind of uh, storytelling and, you know, some of it maybe wasn't fact-checked as it should have been. And we also have to understand that these stories are coming from a place of deep pain and from people who've lived with feelings of being othered their whole lives. So, yes, I mean, there might be embellishment going on and and there needs to be an interrogation. You know, Tami Tolakile, the wicketkeeper who should have succeeded Boucher but never did, uh, made some staggering claims against Graham Smith and, and Smith was forced to defend himself. And I just think we're at a point where the, the listening is not happening. You've got a lot of players of color saying one thing and a lot of white players saying, well, we didn't do that. And then a lot of white players saying, oh, but we're 27 years in now and we have transformation targets and things should be easy, evening out. And a lot of players of color saying, actually, yeah, maybe, but that's not the point. The point is we need to address these social concerns. So cricket in this country, as in many places, is an elite sport uh, it was a sport of empire. It takes place in rich areas. You need facilities. I mean, you can understand why it would be difficult for people of color historically to access mm. the game of cricket. Mm. 
and you know what they were able to do you know playing on uh, matting wickets and concrete and whatever uh, made developed a, a rich cricket culture amongst people of color which i don't think has been adequately recognized so we've got a problem for sure and it, it needs addressing but I, do, I, I don't think that the discussion is happening fruitfully. I think they need to get in somebody who can teach and speak on, on racial bias and who can discuss uh, racial-based trauma and who can talk about how we work through these things. So, I mean, and, and the reason I feel quite strongly about it, my, my other kind of uh, profession, if I can call it that, I work as a, as a social justice yoga teacher. And we've seen many of, of the same issues in that field where we're, we're trying to use an embodied practice to heal racial wounds and, and, and to really look at ourselves and how we treat each other. And I just don't think that that's happening in, in sport. And, you know, the, the real reckoning will come when the Springboks play because, you know, they won the Rugby World Cup with a black captain and a white Afrikaans coach. Mm. And I don't think they're going to take a knee. And I think that will tell us a lot about their mantra of being stronger together because are they or aren't they? And, and that will really, I think, be the watershed moment in South African sport. How has Graham Smith handled that from a, I guess, a media perspective? Has he been vocal in the press, what, one way or another? Uh, he's handled it poorly. The first thing, the first time he was asked to speak on it was before this three-team silly thing that happened. When, um, and that was just after England and West Indies had taken a knee, and Michael Holding and Ebony Rainsbrent had spoken out. And the question was, you know, what is South Africa going to do? And the response was quite defensive in that. Uh, we don't know if we're going to take a knee. We haven't discussed it yet. We're going to find our own way of expressing ourselves. And, you know, that's wonderful, uh, we think. But we never really saw that. And in the end, they took mm. a knee after huge pressure, massive, massive pressure. Then when the national team played against England, obviously the conversation came up again because they hadn't played as a national team. They played as like some three-team gimmick. And so the conversation came up again. And the answer that time was, we feel we've done what we needed to do and we're going to try and live out non-racialism. And I think people of color took great offense to, we feel we've done what we needed to do. You know, you took a knee for 10 seconds once in a match no one watched. So no, that's definitely not doing what you need to do. And if you're going to live out non-racialism, like how do we see that as, as members of the public? You can tell us that you're living non-racialism and you all bri at each other's houses. That's wonderful. We can't see your non-racialism. We need to see what are you doing? And I don't think we're seeing that. And I don't know how we will see that. You know, someone made a very silly suggestion to me on Twitter that we'll see it when the teams celebrate each other. Like, no, we will not. That's how sports teams operate. They celebrate each other and then this one goes and socializes there and that one socializes there. That's not that, that is professional sport. So how we will see non-racialism, I guess, is when, when the issue of, you know, of the fact that we need a transformed team and that maybe we will have to field a side with eight players of color and maybe there will only be space for three white players in our team is widely accepted as this is what we need to do as a society to overcome our heinous past. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, nowhere, we're nowhere close to that. You know, we've got a long way to go. And um, I mean, I think that you've, you've given us an amazing overview of, um, of the background and, and just, I, I guess, what Cricket South Africa has, has to navigate uh, off the field. If we could now transition to um, back on the field, they, they've just uh, arrived in Pakistan. Is, is that right? They were supposed to leave now, yep. but their Emirates flight, I think, has had a problem. So yep. they will be leaving soon, oh, I yeah, hope. Okay. And they should arrive, I suppose, after they leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, so obviously we, you, you mentioned before how um, it's really hard to judge, I guess, their, their performance from that Sri Lanka series. What do you have any sense of what the expectations are now? Um, I mean, firstly, traveling to Pakistan, which is aw awesome for Pakistan cricket. I mean, um, yeah, we've we've spoken to Wasim Khan before on here, um, and just you know, it was a, a big, uh, a big important thing for him to do to to bring cricket back to that country, and um, yeah, obviously be be stoked that they're actually making that happen. But what are they expecting on the field? I think they're not sure. You know, Mark Bacher was part of the last group of, of South Africans to tour there. And he spoke about Pakistan being very different to other subcontinent teams in that, or, or the conditions and that you're not getting the, a, a ball that spins a lot, but it's kind of flatter and there's more pace and maybe reverse swing. Although even now, you know, with, with the COVID protocols and not being able to use spit, I don't know what they're going to do for reverse swing. They're going to have to find a way to scuff the ball up and shine the other side without rubbing it on the zipper, I guess, which is what South Africa have done in the past. So I, I'm not sure that they know what to expect. I think they're hoping 
it will be not too challenging for batsmen because South Africa have had really tough conditions for batsmen over the last couple of years. And if it's going to be flat and there's a way for guys to play themselves in, I think they would be very happy with that. Um, I don't even know if they know how strong Pakistan are. You might be able to tell us because you've just seen them. Mm. But um, I guess from a from a competitive perspective, my assumption would be that it could be quite a closely contested series because South Africa are on a rebuild and it might be a really good challenge for them to play against a team like Pakistan uh, and just gauge themselves there. Uh, in terms of, of, of player development, I think what they want to see, and, the, and there are a few guys who are going to come up as being kind of in the spotlight for this series. So Markram was one of them. They're going to want to see big runs from Markram, consistency, um, less throwing of the wicket away when he just feels like he's had enough kind of thing. If Algar has a good series, I think he, he could really put himself forward as the test captain. Big spotlight on Rassi van der Dissen, who's gone something like 40 international innings without scoring 100. So, you know, he's, he's great, he's mature, he's got good temperament, he plays well. But I think Rassi van der Dissen really needs to make that step up. Always a spotlight on Temba Bavuma. Quinton de Kock will come into the picture as well. And then I think the, the bowlers, so they've taken nine pace bowlers. And Kajita Ravada hasn't played test cricket in more than a year. Whether or not he plays, I think, is still up for debate. But it's really about finding that second layer of, of bowlers now. So South Africa lost so many bowlers over the last three years. You know, Abbott left and Duan Olofir left. And now there's no Colpac. And provided the Americans don't start poaching players for the league, which I think they will do, um, it's a good time for South Africa to develop a kind of first tier of seam bowlers and, and then a second tier. Yeah, I think absolutely um, is what we're expecting in terms of it being quite an even series. I mean, yeah, when Pakistan obviously just been to New Zealand, we um, obviously New Zealand won that series in the end quite comfortably. But at various times, uh, we talked a lot, um, you know, amongst ourselves just about the, the that Pakistan bowling attack and and I guess the talent they have there, and, and especially if Baba Azam comes back into the side for for this series. They do look like they have a really, you know, solid core that could develop into a, a pretty reasonable test side. So um, it'll be quite interesting to see them back home. Do you think we, we're going to see um, spin play much of a part on the South African side? It doesn't sound like it. Um, South Africa have taken the three spinners, uh, Keshav Maharaj, uh, George Linder, so the two left arm, and then Tabre Shamsi, the, the wrist spinner. I don't even know if we'll see all three of them play, actually. I think what's happened with spin in South Africa is that Keshav Maharaj has just been uh, so outstanding and so consistent, and now he's starting to bat a little bit better as well. And, I mean, he took one brilliant catch against Sri Lanka, which I don't even think anybody knew he could run that fast to get to the ball. So he is really um, just kind of establishing a bit of a hegemony over that role, and I think it's going to be difficult for other guys. I think uh, Shamsi should get an opportunity because he's done so well in the first-class domestic circuit, um, he's probably stepping into the role Imran Tahir played in the white ball cricket. Um, but it sounded to me from what Mark Boucher was saying yesterday that South Africa are not expecting it to, to be a, a trial by spin. And they're hoping, maybe they're just trying to be positive, that it's not going to be something like what they had in India in 2019. Mm. And to be fair, that wasn't even that bad. You know, it was mostly like Ishan Sharma taking wickets there. But uh, Inga, India in 2015 was like next level. Remember Nagpur, Mahali, terrible pitches. I don't think they're expecting that. And I also think that there's almost a sense that, that Pakistan want to create good cricket wickets because they want to get teams coming to play there. Mm -hmm. And so they want it to be a nice, even competitive surface where, you know, it does all the things like there's a little bit of swing and bounce and then it flattens and then it turns. And like, that's all we want from a, from a cricket pitch. So... I think that's what they're expecting. Um, I'm very upset that I'm not able to go on the tour because uh, foreign journalists were not allowed to travel, but also, you know, for other kind of health and safety reasons, it might not have been the best idea mm. because I really wanted to see kind of Pakistan surfaces firsthand and, um, and just to see Pakistan. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when I observe it from the television screen what, what it's like and whether it lived up to expectations. And, and Quinton de Kock's been vocal about the the bubble uh, um, amongst other players who have had similar comments about its unsettling nature. What what are what are the perceptions of the South African cricketers about life in the bubble, particularly on this Pakistan tour? They seem almost uh, resigned to that a tour of Pakistan would have taken place in some sort of bubble anyway, whether there was COVID or not, because there's a security issue. Uh, and the way that Mark Bouch has been talking about it. I almost wonder if he ever left a hotel room ever in the subcontinent because he's just been saying, when you go to the subcontinent, you never leave your hotel room, which is not true. You know, we've seen pictures of Dale Stane playing football with kids in Bangladesh. 
during a, a rained out days of test cricket. So I think it's changed. Maybe in the in Bouchers playing days, the subcontinent was a place where you kind of sheltered. But guys have become more adventurous. They've realized there's a world outside of the hotel and they have started to do things. Obviously, they won't be doing that now. The, the first reports that we heard was that they would be confined to one floor of the hotel, which I suppose is quite tricky. Mm. But they're in talks to use a, it sounds like a sports club across the road where there'll be a field and a swimming pool and a gym and that sort of thing. Um, I think that they're just kind of accepting it as this is what needs to happen because they haven't played cricket for so long. And I'm kind of in two minds about it myself. You know, I was chatting with some colleagues about India's concerns in Brisbane, and obviously they've been in a bubble for much longer. And although I think that there needs to be an understanding that being cloistered up in one space takes a toll on your mental health, you know, someone else was saying that also maybe professional sports people need to realize that they're actually incredibly privileged to be able to earn a living doing what they do in a time when so many of us are not able to. And I mean, I'm not really even speaking about myself here. So there's a tricky balance between like they're in a really privileged position, but then they have to get tested a lot and they can't go out and they're away from their families and all those mm. things. And it, it's really difficult. It really shows up the kind of fragility of our system, doesn't it? That, you know, we, we just always expect things to be a certain way. And as soon as something changes, we're kind of in a tailspin. So I think South Africa will be okay. The, the challenge will come if they play Australia because they will then go straight from this Pakistan bubble into a bubble against Australia. And that will last until the middle of March, I think. And then they also do to play some white ball matches against Pakistan, although I suspect that will be second string sides. And then they'll go to the IPL. So if it becomes like a really long bubble, I think we might see guys pulling out of things like the IPL. I think for now, South Africa just need to play cricket and they know it. It sounds like for the future of South African cricket, and you've painted a, a wonderful, albeit murky, picture of, of the future of the administration of, of sport in your country. The Australian tour looms kind of as almost a make or break point for, for cricket in South Africa. What's the latest on, on the kind of organisation and the preparation for that tour? Do you think it's likely that it'll play, take place in South Africa or are the administration looking at an alternative of maybe playing it in somewhere like Perth that has a strong South African following, quite close in terms of time zone, um, you know, potentially maybe safer from a COVID point of view. What's the latest there? Yeah, I mean, if I knew who to ask, I'd ask them. Um, I kind of like reach out to a couple of sources over time. What we're hearing is that Cricket South Africa have proposed to Cricket Australia that the series take place in Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. So initially it was due to be Durban, PE and, and Cape Town. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a lot of moving around the coastline. So, and you know, we're in three provinces, all three actually have been severely affected. So has the Gauteng province actually, but the Irene Country Club bubble proved successful against Sri Lanka. And so they're wanting to replicate that and play tests at Supersport Park and the Wanderers. And that is as the totality of, of what I've heard. Cricket Australia, I know, have asked to complete the series against India before they make a decision, mm -hmm. which seems fair. Um, I don't think South Africa will be keen to go to Perth. Unless there is a deal where they are still getting probably all of the broadcast rights, because sure. I think that, you know, from a financial perspective, it will hinge on that. Mm. I think they'd probably be more keen to go to Dubai. Um, and that has come up as a possibility as well, that the UAE could host the, the series. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if it was a choice between Perth and, and the UAE, South Africa would probably choose the UAE. It might not make for a great series, though. You know, we want the conditions to be where we can see these two great attacks going up against each other and yeah. Australia's attack are looking quite good. So, again, it's not, it's not ideal. I think the ideal would probably be to play it in Johannesburg at the Wanderers and, and Supersport Park. And that's what, what would be the ideal for Cricket South Africa. And Australia's decision, I guess, hinges on, on what happens in the next few weeks in this country because we've just had all the holidaymakers leave the coast and go back up to Johannesburg, potentially with a lot of COVID. Mm. And so we're hearing that the next two to three weeks in Johannesburg will probably be be quite overwhelming in terms of COVID cases, in terms of deaths. You know, we had uh, more deaths last week than, than we've had ever at any stage of the pandemic and I think even in any week perhaps in our history. So it's definitely looking bleak. And, uh, and if Cricket South Africa can assure Cricket Australia that that bubble is safe and secure, then I think that it could happen here. The one thing I'm slightly concerned about is that if Australia go from this series into an IPL bubble, a lot of their players might not be comfortable spending so much time in bubbles. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, you know, would you want an Australia series where you've got a Steve Smith and a David Warner pulling out? Probably not. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's really tricky and there's so much hinging on it. It really is. You know, I can't stress how important it is for South African cricket that that series goes ahead from a playing perspective, from a financial perspective. 
because and it's really the only certain cricket we've got. And then there's just kind of this blank slate. I mean, next summer is so unconfirmed that you know other teams have got fixtures going and and you know, we don't even know if we'll have a cricket board by then. Mm. So it, it's it's very important that it takes place. And is South Africa in a stronger position given that they can host a potentially biosecure bubble at a venue that allows players to socialise and interact and experience life outside of a hotel room? You mentioned the country club with the ability to play golf and, and have all of those social activities. We've heard a lot of players feeling like they're trapped and they've only got a view of the cricket ground and they all they have is hotel and, and ground and dressing room. How much do you think will be influenced by the fact that South Africa can provide an environment where players can experience some life outside of just a hotel room and a cricket ground with the country club? Yeah, I mean, I think that helps. There are definitely rules in place. The country club's got a dam at which players can fish, but they cannot fish next to each other. So I guess you have to be up on opposite sides of the dam or something like that. And I think, you know, they could play golf, but only in the drive, they could only do that, use the driving range. And I can't remember the exact situation. So it's Mm. not like, there's a lot going on. It sure. is still quite restricted, mm. but it helps for sure that they can get out a little bit. And, you know, a lot of our biggest states will have outdoor spaces where I suppose, even if you just wanted to like not see the four walls of your room, you could go and see something else, which I, I think is quite beneficial to people. So I think the country club is a great idea. Um, I think if, if, if Cricket Australia buy into that, then then there's no reason the series can't take place the way the Sri Lanka series did. Mm-hmm. I think the issue is that the country is experiencing this huge COVID wave and the variant is very, I don't want to say dangerous, but easily spreadable. And we are seeing that, you know, we just have no kind of gauge as to how we're going to handle it. Whereas other countries, well, I'm saying other countries, but I mean, neither do the UK, do they? So maybe it's it's just a case of like, you know, it's a case of reassuring people that this is a safe place to be, that if you, if you take, two steps off the airplane you're not going to be like hit by a swarm of COVID kind Mm. of thing and it's difficult to reassure people of that when we've just seen our numbers go up and up and up so uh, what I'm hoping is that you know we're coming down now a little bit and so maybe by the time we get to mid-February we'll be in a little bit of a trough and then potentially there'll be a peak again sometime in April or May but if we can start to dip a little bit in the numbers maybe that will reassure Australia you know for us it's incredible that there were 20 something cases in Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it was. And there was talk of like postponing things where, whereas we're in the thousands of cases and nobody talks about postponing anything. Mm. So it, it's just a completely different way of navigating the pandemic. You know, even when I look at, at New Zealand, I think, didn't you guys shut Auckland down when you had like two cases, yeah. Yeah, we you did. know, whereas we're just not in a position where, where we could even dream of doing mm. something like that. So yeah, different perspectives, I guess. We've touched a lot on men's cricket on the show, but we wanted to touch on on the women's game in South Africa as well uh, briefly. What's on the horizon for for women's cricket in South Africa? They've obviously had similar effects, maybe um, stronger financial impacts to the women's game potentially um, than the men's game. What's the situation in terms of women's cricket in South Africa and their and their calendar moving forward? Well, there is a bit of good news in that Pakistan have arrived and they'll be playing three ODIs and three T20s all in Durban starting from January 20th. So that's great for the women who haven't played since the T20 World Cup. And they had quite a lot postponed. They had a tour to West Indies postponed. They had a home series against Australia postponed. And then they were invited to go to England to be the first uh, women's team to play in that bio bubble. But uh, we were on border restrictions and the government said no. Mm. So they unfortunately have had quite a lot uh, not going their way. Eight of the 14 nationally contracted women's players played in the women's BBL. So that's been good in that they've at least got some exposure to high level cricket. Mm. I think the problem is after the Pakistan series, there's not anything confirmed on the calendar and we don't know when they will play next. But obviously there's that World Cup next year and they've automatically qualified for it. They fancy themselves, you know, they really fancy their chances. They've been building and they do well at big tournaments, which, you know, is not something we say of a South African team that often. But they really, I think, if if they get game time and they can get it together, they could be a force to be reckoned with in, in New Zealand next year. But they just need to play. And so... Money is one thing, as you mentioned, you know, it, it is expensive hosting women's cricket, especially in bio-bubble environments. They do have a sponsor, um, unlike the men's team. So they will they will have a sponsor till the end of that World Cup. And, and maybe that will help bring some sort of fixtures in. Mm. Uh, we'll have to kind of wait and see what happens after this Pakistan series. But yeah, absolutely vital that the women play. 
Well, Fidosh, you've painted a, a terrific picture for us and, and thank you so much for your time going through um, uh, th- what seems like a, a mire of South African cricket administration. Just before you go, um, where can people find you and, and are you working on anything special at the moment that you'd like to give a plug to? That's an interesting one. Well, they can find me at home because I'm not going to be leaving anytime <laughs> soon. But otherwise, um, all my cricket stuff goes up on ESPN Quick Info and... Um, on, and I usually also post the links on my Twitter, which is at Fidose M. If they feel like doing some yoga, they can find me on Instagram. It's at Photos by Fidose. Um, I am actually, I was working on a piece about uh, the impact on, on women's cricket um, mm-hmm. and the slow start after the pandemic on, on women's cricket. But also this is 30 years since uh, readmission. And so South Africa returned to international cricket in 1991. Mm-hmm. And uh, just content permitting, I'm hoping to have quite a big overall picture of what cricket was like in this country before readmission and who was playing cricket uh, where, you know, I mentioned that uh, a lot of communities of color had developed their own ways of doing things. We had boards, you know, we had a board cricket, we call it, which is cricket played amongst com- uh, people of color, very competitive, the Howard Bowl, and just what happened there. And then also kind of what happened post readmission and, and what South Africa needs to do to, to maybe just come to some sort of cohesion as it looks to maybe the next 30 years in international sport. Oh, that sounds, that sounds very interesting. Uh, we will, yeah, we'll definitely be looking out for that. That sounds awesome. Oh, well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for your, your time. It's been, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, yeah, all the, all the best for, for the rest of the summer. Thanks guys. Yeah. And good. Well, I'm envious of you and your, and your low COVID stats, but I hope that it, it continues that way. Thanks for tuning in to the top order podcast before you disappear from our feed. If you're a new listener, please do go and check out the back catalogue. We've spoken recently to New Zealand coach Gary Stead. We've got Graham Thorpe. We've got Shane Dietz. We've got Barry Richards, Shane Bond, Colin Miller, all in the back catalogue. You can find the details www.thetoporderpodcast.com. We're the Top Order Podcast on Instagram, although we're still really figuring that out. We're at Top Order Pod on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy to jump on. Give our tweets a share or a retweet and we'll see you next week.